I guess first I wanted to uh, just thank you for promoting social science. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's my pleasure. It is. Uh, it really is amazing. I thought about it on the flight. Uh, what what you've done to popularize uh, social science? It's it's amazing because I mean, of course, you, your books have been very successful, but so many other people, yeah, uh, have done it since. And uh, I, I think there was there was a sense in which uh, I don't think anybody in the field realized that our stuff could become interesting until really. I think that you think that that's, that's true. That there was that le- that little confidence in the kind of ability to transcend academia they listened and they enjoyed it yeah uh, but but i think before that there was no sense of demand i think there was a question of if, if i got somebody to come and listen yeah there i think were, ted there was has a lot to do with this phenomenon as well in fact much more than me that they have opened up people's eyes to how uh, that's right although it, it happened yeah i mean it, it, it's hard to separate yeah but, but anyway thank you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um Okay, so the first thing I want to ask you is, how do you pick your topics? I don't really know. Um, I mean, desperation. Um, I, you know, these are, I see things and I collect them. I think they, I think they might be interesting. But there's no, there's no theory or system or, I go to the library sometimes and I just kind of roam around or I go on the databases and just type in things at random or I, get articles and read through the bibliography and you know I just kind of it's just a constant sort of I'm always looking for the next um, but there's no rhyme or reason it's totally it's someone will say something to me interesting and I'll just follow up on it or something <laughs> to be a writer I think you sort of I think anyway you're you're kind of constitutionally disposed towards optimism yeah um, or, or um, uh, uh, positivism or something is it is do you feel it's the same in your articles or just in the books? Because the articles I don't see as positive. As no, they're not. I mean, the articles are they're very different. Writing for the New Yorker and writing a book is a very very different craft. It's a very different audience. The New Yorker audience is so sophisticated. I mean, it's the most sophisticated uh, mass audience of any magazine in America, yeah. and one of the most sophisticated of any in the world. And so, you can sort of get away with not get away with the wrong word, but you can presume a very high level of sophistication. So you, it's just easier, you know, it's, you don't have to kind of, um, easier in one sense, you have to explain yourself, harder in other sense that the bar is really high. Yeah. And they're ready for something difficult. Um, uh, whereas a book is a, is your, it's a much broader audience. And so mm-hmm. you, you, you just have to, I, I write them in very different ways. Um, my so, so, but, but is it, is it correct characterization that you feel that, in writing books, you're trying to be more positive, trying to portray. Uh... Well, that form lends itself to um, much more of a. I don't know whether that's um, when you sit with something. A, a book is much more your own. So when you write for the New Yorker, you're writing within the constraints of the New Yorker. So you're adopting a kind of the New Yorker mindset to a certain extent, and you're writing. It's a genre. Yeah. Um, so you're, it's, and you're edited by New Yorker people. And so you're kind of, it's a lot more, uh, you're working within a much, much narrower frame when you write for the New Yorker. Books are much more personal. I, I would say that my books are much more represent my, my, um, probably a more accurate depiction of my own personal philosophy mm-hmm. than my New Yorker articles, which are, which I don't think it's either better or worse. It's just kind of, you know, as a psychologist, you would know the, 
power of context in <laughs> yes. this environment. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so actually, so do you feel like you can't write both of them, kind of switch between one to another? You really kind of wear a different style? A little bit. It's yeah. easy now to switch. Uh, I mean, it's not easy to switch. It's just, it's interesting to switch. Um, and to write something... And writing something that's 80,000 words long is just a kind of such a different experience than writing something that's 5,000 words long. Mm-hmm. The, the, the storytelling becomes so much more important in a book than in an article. Um, and that totally changes the way you approach a subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this, this, do you think you're a better storyteller or a better writer? Well, I've worked very hard at becoming a better storyteller. It's, what, it's the part of my writing that I focus the most on the uh-huh. last... 10 years, um, I became very sort of obsessed with the writing of um, Michael Lewis and wanted to emulate him. Mm-hmm. Um, I, think, I still think he's the greatest storyteller of my generation of writers. Uh-huh. And I wanted to, uh, I tried to kind of be a better storyteller. Um, You've done a good job. Uh, I hope so. I mean, I, it really has been a conscious effort. I don't think I was a very good storyteller, you know, 15 years ago to the same extent. It's amazing you can like. And, and which which one of your books do you like the most? Well, the most successful book as a book is Outliers. Uh, the one that was most satisfying to write was Blink. Is a very kind of um, perhaps unnecessarily sort of a complicated book. Um, it's the one that is most broadly misinterpreted. Yes, <laughs> um, and it's the one. I think I think it's misinterpreted because people don't read all of it. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was this, I, it was actually, I was trying to do something that I probably wouldn't do if I was doing it again. Um, it's supposed to be structured like a, it's structured like a story, like a kind of thriller. It has a twist. Mm-hmm. So it starts out by telling you your instincts are fantastic. And then it's supposed to, over the course of the book, gradually disabuse you of that notion. And then in the end, it's about how our instincts are disastrous if left, if, you know, without proper context and but that's what i wanted to do with the reader to do is i thought that if i started out by saying your instincts are terrible nobody would read the book (laughs) so i thought and it wouldn't be effective as a story i thought far better to kind of draw them in with this the expert spotting the fake right yeah and then by the end you have this what's supposed to be this heart-rending story of the the diallo lying dead because these cops followed their instincts and um, yeah, but you're right. No one, it, it, the number of people who read it that way was vanishingly <laughs> small. Yeah. So it's sort of a failure, Blink. But it's, I, it's my, in many ways, it's very dear to my heart because I, I was happy to try something. Um, uh, more, it was a more difficult way. I, I, it was a, it was a kind of, for me, it was a kind of a, I took a chance in how to tell that story. Didn't may not have worked, but it was a. Yeah, I, mean, I think there's a sense in which people in business books basically read one chapter. Yeah. And I think many people, at least people with MBAs, yeah, um, read just the first few chapters. Or they, or it's a great example of of narrative anchoring. Yeah. Right. So you, they, they, they convince because I read tons and tons and tons and tons of thrillers. It's what I read on when I'm not reading scripts. But I'm very used to the idea <coughs> that you start out thinking. X and you end up thinking Y. To me, that's what every good story does. But I think there's a thing that people read when they read nonfiction is they very they very they get an initial impression of what the book is about and interpret everything else around that. They're so I mean it's anchoring. They have they are wedded to an interpretation. 
and force everything into that. And they're not flexible in the way they. Yeah, that's, I, I think that, that's right. So, um, from that perspective, I would be disappointed that that Blink might have given people the opinion that they are better gut intuitors than they really are. Well, uh, I'm disappointed. I don't. I, mean, worry I, am, about I have to tell you, uh, I, I yeah. get I get students who've read the first few chapters and who leap to that conclusion, and yeah. they leap and and in many ways it's dangerous, right? Because they you, you're very persuasive. Yeah, you write very well. I mean, and then uh, they read a few chapters and they stop. Yeah, and they are left with an impression that's, that's that the intuitions then that takes me a semester. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do tell them to read the end of. I, I actually, without mistake. Yeah, I, I tell. I ask them what they think. Yeah, and they said they think their gut intuitions are correct. And I said, how many of you read the okay. last half of the book? Yeah, and almost nobody. Well, I will say, in a way, I am. I mean, I, I, that's why I sort of think of the book as being a kind of, on one level, it's a sort of failure. Um, but on the other hand, I will say two things. One is that um, as a writer, you do have to abandon the book once you've finished it. You're not, every book, no matter how it's written, is going to be misinterpreted by some. I mean, just mm-hmm. what books are about. And that's yeah. the beauty of it. People read books their own way, right? The other thing is, though, um, it warms my heart to hear that you use it. What Blink is really good for is I think it's a book that is the, if I was teaching a freshman course in psychology, I would have them read it on the first day, and then I would use it as a jumping off point to, to explore all kinds of things in more detail. I mean, as a way of getting people excited about a topic, that I think it's, it's, it's appropriate use. Yeah. Um, but it does require, it's a book that begs all kinds of further mm-hmm. exploration. Um, yeah. But they're all supposed to do that. They're supposed to incite people, people's curiosity. <laughs> So, so that's the next thing I want to ask you. So this is a d- dilemma that I, I have a lot, which is how much of the nuances of the research to get into. So, so you describe research and, mm-hmm. you know, we have lots of paper that show the main effect and there's always lots of paper that show the boundary conditions and the cases and it becomes yeah. incredibly complex. And, it does, yeah. And science doesn't understand how things work yeah. yet. And, and there's, a, there's a question of how do you decide what's central to the story and mm-hmm. what to leave out? What what nuances do yeah. you leave out? Well, you... I mean, it, that is obviously something I wrestle with constantly because there is no way in the books that I do or the articles that are at The New Yorker to reflect the full complexity of the underlying academic data. Right? Can't be done. Yeah. Um, so what you try and do is either represent the best supported position yeah. or... Make it clear that what you're arguing is a is a an interpretation of the data, and uh-huh. there might be others. Or you use this in the surface of a larger idea. So, um, for example, in Outliers, when I talk about the uh, a good example would be the summer learning effect. Uh huh. Yeah. Right. So there's an enormous amount of data on that. Yeah. Some shows are really strong summer learning effects. Some shows not as strong. To an academic, how strong that effect is is of enormous importance. To me in that story, not important. We're, what we're really interested in is communicating the idea that there are consequences to the summer vacation yeah. for a kid who is on the bottom end of the scale. Right. Um, how large those consequences is, I don't know. But it's significant. Yeah. It's worth talking about. Okay. And as a guide to 
a school system like the KIPP system trying to raise the level, it's invaluable. It says it really, if we're going to do an extra three weeks of school in the summer, it's going to have a material impact on the outcome of those kids. So from, the, from that standpoint, it's sufficient. I don't have to go into the weeds. Yeah, I, right? I agree. I mean, that's also probably the, the strongest example of any data that we have in education. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and what's also the case that we don't have disordinary interactions, right? So the effect is either big or medium or not so big, but there's no cases where it reverses. Yes, that's right. And that, and that makes it yeah. easier so I, to... I, I picked an easy example. <laughs> yes. I think that the, the hard question is what happens when the effect goes under some conditions the other way around. Yeah. Um, and, and then, so, so there, are two, there are two things. There's, there's a question of how do you present mm-hmm. the interactions, and there's another question of what do you do with variance? So let's mm-hmm. say that you have an experiment mm-hmm. that works very well and very consistently and explains 20% of the variance. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, it's a beautiful thing to explain 20% of the variance. We would all be happy mm-hmm. to do it, but it's only 20% of the variance. Yeah. And it's very hard, I think, to describe something that leaves people an understanding that this is a really important effect, but there's more unknown than known. More, yeah, there's more after this. Yeah. Um, and you're right, because you can only tell the story about the part that's known. Right. So you're um, no, I don't you know, I think I think people are more uh, readers are a good deal more sophisticated, I think, than we give them credit for. I don't think anyone reads a book like yours or a book like mine or a book like Freakonomics and uh, thinks that what we're arguing, talking about explains everything. I think what they're doing is they are plugging that they're plugging this new knowledge into their existing explanatory system. So they already have an explanatory system that has many variables mm-hmm. that has a kind of lay notion of variance attached to it. And they're, they're saying, oh, okay, I'm going to... So with, in Tipping Point, the discussion of crime in New York, yeah. right? I don't think many readers came, came away from that thinking, oh, crime dropped in New York just, just because they cleaned the graffiti off the subway. But I think what people did is they said, oh, I need to add that variable into my lay account of what happened in New York. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an appropriate, that's how they read that. And it, you, when you tell the story, you're taking for granted that they have an existing set of, of variables in their head and you're just adding to it. And, and you think this, uh, so I think the crime in New York, it, it's clear. People have lots of lay theories. Yeah. And, and also real which theories. Are, which are not, which are not false. Yeah. They're very useful. They there just happen to be a three or four other theories that they need to take into a consideration. But but when you write or when I write, we're not. I, I don't feel you or I making explicit mm-hmm. that this. I'm going to tell you a story about a small part of the picture. Yeah, and and part of it I think is is the question of what's a good story. Yeah, it's very hard to tell a good story. So I'll tell you. I'll tell you a story, and at the end of the day, I'll explain you. It will yeah. explain twenty percent of. But I mean, you know the. This is an interesting topic, but it goes to this issue of what do people do with the things they read in books such as this? And my assumption, my working assumption is what they do is they talk about it, right? The, the, reason, the reason people read a book like how, books like ours as opposed to novels mm-hmm. is the books like ours are fodder for continued thought and conversation. And I hear this all the time from readers. I talk about this with my family. We have arguments about this. And that makes me feel 
it's okay to do to tell the story the way we do because like i said the experience doesn't end on the final page it is being it's feeding into an ongoing conversation that people have about um but their but you, lives but you would like people to take this into account when school programs mm-hmm. are designed or were yeah to be but like i said i want i would like it to be added to the conversation and part of what like so to go back to outliers the discussion of um uh of birthday effects mm-hmm. in school years yeah, that, that's, <laughs> now, that's a thing where does does being a december baby in a january cutoff year <clears throat> mean you'll never go to college no but it's It is, why is it important to bring up? Well, it's this much of the story, but it's such a dumb, obvious, easy thing to fix. Yes. It's totally worth, of all the things we can do to get a 10% bump, right? This is, it's not going to cost us anything. We could rearrange classes in elementary schools by, you know, have, if you had, I had three, in my elementary school, there were three classes in each grade. It would have been so easy to do January, April, yeah. May, you know, Really, that's, so that's why you bring it up. You bring it up and you place perhaps undue, what might seem like undue importance to it yeah. because it <clears throat> ought to be at the top of the list of, yeah. of things to... Yeah, and, this, right? and, and you, you know, I, I hear, by the way, parents in my kids' school are talking about this in, in terms of the logic of leaving a kid a, a year behind when they're in kindergarten. So should they go to first grade or oh, not? Yeah, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of that. I know there's a lot of... Uh, over-invested upper-middle-class parents have, have yes. taken this to heart in a way that might be distressing. Um, so so, so the, the variance, I think, is one thing. And, mm-hmm. and what, about, what about kind of scientific nuances or places where the results go the other way? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so we, have, we have this view of what's the main effect, and yeah. then we have this <clears throat> expected yeah. interaction in some yeah. odd cases. I mean, I don't feel like, so there are these kind of polarized issues in social science. And the one that I, you know, I touch on in, in Blink, I touch, the polarized issue I touch on is, is probably the race stuff, racial mm-hmm. prejudice stuff. In Outliers, the polarized stuff I touch on is, is the IQ stuff, obviously. And there are IQ fundamentalists out there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like Pinker, right, who reviewed... in a kind of hostile way, reviewed uh, what the dog saw. You know, am I ever going to see eye to eye with Pinker? No. I mean, at a certain point, I am bringing my own values and perspectives to bear on my interpretation of this literature. Okay. And I am placing my bets with the Nisbets of the world over the Pinkers of the world. Uh-huh. And I feel comfortable doing that. And if you are a diehard IQ fundamentalist, yeah. you're not going to like that part of my book. And that's, I'm fine with that. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, I don't pretend that this is at a certain, there are always points in um, social science or in any kind of, not any kind of science, but particularly in social science where you, you take a stand on the yeah. basis of your values. This is also in physics. You just don't see it. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's only when you get closer, you realize yeah. how much stance there is. Yeah. So, so when you learn this stuff, uh, do you mostly read it from books and papers? Do you talk to people? Do you go to oh, classes? I go, I go. go to talk to professors and I read lots of lit- the literature I mean it depends on the story and how much of sometimes the literature is actually very beautifully done and very easy to follow and sometimes it's opaque and I have to call them up and 
ask them what such and such means. Yeah. Did you ever have like a topic that you tried to delve into and decide that uh, the literature was just too too complex? Opaque? Yeah, I mean, all the time. I just trying to give a good example. I mean, you are limited in the sense that you can only write about things that you can explain for a lay audience. This is the great if this is one of the one of the things that academics sometimes fail to grasp about popular writing. They, sometimes there's sometimes there I feel like there is some friction between me and the academic world. Not a lot, but there's a little bit sometimes. Part of it is I don't think they understand the limitations of the form. There, are, there is almost no occasion when they are writing for their own audience where um, they can't tackle a topic because of the difficulty explaining it. There's all, there's, someone's always going to be able to follow it, or some huge percentage of their audience is always going to be able to follow it. And it's, it's a small audience. It's a small audience, but that's the, that's the, the beauty of academic work. Whereas I literally, I cannot, I cannot discuss something that my audience can't understand. I can't do it. I lose them. They're gone. You know, then I failed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that limits the, um, the way in which I talk about, not, not hugely or dangerously, but it, it limits. I mean, it means that I will tend to stress some things sometimes more than others. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, you know, this is, to use my favorite quotation from The Godfather, as Hyman Roth said to Michael Corleone, this is the business we have chosen, right? <laughs> you know, you, you accept when you, when, you take a, when you take a position in a certain kind of field, you accept the limitations of it. And that's one of them. You know, you know when, when uh, there was a, a review in the New York Times of my first book, the, the guy who was running the Society for Judgment Decision-Making, or Main Society, mm-hmm. uh, wrote the, the whole distribution list that this is exactly the reason we shouldn't write popular books. Because whoever reviewed it, and the review was good, um, didn't delve into some nuance. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's, a real, that's a real challenge with, with academics, I think. Yeah. Is that the, the value of the complexity mm-hmm. of, of the picture is so, is so high. So, so this, I actually wanted to, to ask you, this is... Um, so I don't know if you remember, but uh, you, you came to the Society for Judgment Decision Making oh, yeah. a few years ago. I forgot where it was. Um, and, and somebody in the audience asked you a question about plagiarism. Oh, yeah. And you've written about yeah. uh, plagiarism in, in general. And, 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 and the, the question in the audience, which, which kept on echoing for a long time with this community, was that the research of Blink was largely based on people in that in that society mm-hmm. um, and academic standards for quotations are incredibly mm-hmm. uh, strict in, in a sense. And you <clears throat> have completely different, uh, I mean, you don't write an academic paper. Yeah. And um, they asked you how you felt about it. And I, I remember your answer, but I was wondering if you, if you don't mind telling well, me what, what you, I don't remember my answer. Because... What was my answer? What, what was the, what was the question that, the, the, the fear was that there were lots of people in the room who mm-hmm. did not get enough credit. Oh, really? For, for I was trying, you mean, not even in EndNotes? And... Probably in EndNotes. I don't think anybody, but, but not, in, not in the text, not in what people actually read. I see. Um, and I never talked to Gigerenzer. I don't know if he wrote his book afterward because he felt that he yeah. needed more or yeah. what was his... Um, and actually, I mean, a lot of the people you wrote about are writing their own book, so, yeah. so, so it had a good yeah. effect. Well, I mean, I suppose, yeah, no, do, 
in popular journalism, I mean, I, I use the same standards that we for attribution and such that we would use in the New Yorker or the mm -hmm. Washington Post. So I was using journalism standards, yeah. which are, you're right, a little bit different. I hope that I credited everybody in the end notes. I think so. And if I didn't do that, then I have erred. Yeah, um, I don't think I don't think that yeah. that was the issue. But you don't. But no. But I do. I insert references in the text. No, because again, you can't. I mean, that's the that's, that's the business. That's the business you've chosen. You yeah. like, you no reader would would um, would put up with that. And mm -hmm. so you. Um, but it's why my own standards about. I don't know what my <coughs> answer was, but um, it's why I don't get upset when my work is. That was your answer. Yeah. You actually gave you, you told about somebody who took who stole a play from you. Oh no, not stole a play from you. Took all these lines from that's right. And and, and you said and you said that you, you decide not to be upset about that. Mm -hmm. And now you decide. So it wasn't for the group. It wasn't a great answer. It was a good story. But yeah, no, I realize that's. But yeah, I don't. I I have never gotten. Um, I mean, it happens all the time. People not long ago. David Brooks in the Times wrote a column which looked astonishingly like huge parts of it, some piece I'd written. But that that's, I I think that's fine. I mean, it wasn't, he didn't draw exactly the same conclusion. He used an example at some length, which I had used a couple of years earlier. Um, did he get it from me? I have no idea. People simultaneously come across the same things all the time, right? Yeah. Even if he did get it from me, that's fine. I mean... It's journalism. It you once you've written it, you, you it is no longer yours. It yeah. belongs to the world, and you just have to be comfortable with that. So academics don't do that, right? I mean, yeah. that's that's the I think that's the big difference. Yeah, is that once it, something is out there, it's still yours. Yeah, and it's interesting. It's not it's not the journals and it's not the universities. It's not the, your employ. It's not the people who paid for it actually. Yeah, yeah, it's really yours. But I, you know, I do think I do. I'm very careful that when I rely heavily on somebody, and when I feel their research is central to the story, they are they are invariably in the. That's right. So, so there are people, there the are people that you bring to the story. Yeah. At the margins, I may, but if your if your work is central, you're you are you're in the story. I mean, there's almost no. I don't think anyone can point to an exception where that where that's not the case. So. A very different question is uh, in the process of trying to write things that influence people's minds. Mm -hmm. what, what have you learned about people? What have you learned about the psychology of people? I've learned that if you tell your story properly, people are very, very open-minded, far more open-minded than I have thought. Um, or to put it in a more sophisticated way, they are, I've always said they are, people are information rich and theory poor. That if you can give them a way of organizing their experiences, then their minds are wide open, um, which I would not have necessarily thought. Mm -hmm. And that if you can frame questions appropriately, you can overcome all kinds of ideological, what you would have thought of as ideological constraints. That's very interesting. Um, so I've been continuously surprised I always thought that my book, because I am a political liberal, that my books would have heavily liberal audiences. But in fact, they don't. They have. They, they yeah. seem to be. But um, but they're also not very liberal books. Do you do you read them as being liberal? I read them as liberal. But this is another case where, like, 
how I read my books is yeah. irrelevant <laughs> to how they're written. They're read, read, rather. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you know, it's like. Um, but it's interesting that you think it's a theory, not the data. That that I think is fascinating. <coughs> that, yeah, I think that it's, it's the, about the organizing principles. It's the principles that that people <coughs> that they um, that that's what they're that's what the books always have a kind of give people these kind of broader theories because that's what they go to first. And then they'll fill in the gap with the data. But they want some way of some way of reorganizing their their view of things. Yeah. Right. So um, that's what's potent in I think in these kinds of books. That, that's very interesting. Like kind of the Harvard Business Review thing, right? They, they give you a yeah some kind of framework to, around I, I always try to fight with my students against those things. Because I think they're oversimplified and, and so on. But it's interesting. So you think that the, that the organizing principle is what people are open to. That you can't convince them with data. You can't, it's not as easy to give them examples. That no, the examples fall away or they get... That's not what people necessarily... They want that, but they want that secondarily. Well, I think of the non-academic, the lay audience as being people, like I said, they're experienced rich in three, four. They have a whole bunch of things in their head that they can't organize that they, they don't, they, not because they're incapable of it, but that's just not, their lives aren't structured towards, you know, they're doing their job. They're a, whatever, a lawyer or a businessman or something. They don't have the leisure to kind of sit back and take all of this stuff and arrange it on the table, right? Yeah. And so when they read, they're attracted, particularly, this is why my sort of theory for why books such as ours seem to have risen to, prominence in recent years and that is that as people's lives grow more complex the need for these theories grows they really really want some way of yeah. you know some way of kind of, of of organizing all of this extraordinary amount of data they're swimming in but I, I attribute my success to the recession that came up in the beginning of 2008 it was a fantastic time for oh you're a great to... time yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, by the way we, we uh, Mike Norton I just did this paper on what Americans think is a just society. Mm-hmm. So we gave people Rawls' definition. You know, the oh, yeah. yeah. of ignorance. Yeah. And we show them different distribution. We say, what's a just society? A society with which you'll be willing to enter in every place. And we show them wealth distributions. And basically, 92% of Americans chose Sweden over the U.S. <clears throat> and when we break it by Republican Democrats, for mm-hmm. example, for Democrats, it's 93. For Republicans, it's 90 and a half. Yeah. But very similar. Right, the direction is there, but the moment you strip language out of it mm-hmm. and you talk about the principle, what's a just society? People seem to agree tremendously. Yeah. Now, the moment we say we'll, how we will redistribute wealth, we'll do it with taxes, with mm-hmm. sales tax, with education, then with charity, then people would get yeah. in arms. But but it seems like the basic stuff, people. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. It, it, it was that nice, dish, to, nice that, to find out. But that goes to my point that their greatest openness is at the kind of conceptual level. And their yeah. barriers are at the are at the kind of in the particulars. That's right. The moment you abstract land, a kind of particular ideology, there's a way to abstract ideology, but it's not the same as getting a theory. I think a theory is, is another. Element. Oh, I see. Maybe I'm using the word theory to. I mean something more broad. I mean just a way of organizing, whether that's yeah. a kind of no, but I think useful that. concept or a kind of, mm-hmm. or whether it's as far flung as a theory. Um, all of those things are what are the way in. Okay, so you've learned that people are more open-minded than you mm-hmm. expected initially, especially with organizing principles. 
any other lessons about what have been um, what, what have you done that has been successful in, in convincing people to think or, or take a different position I mean you, you are uh, a persuader yeah okay I mean I think people are looking for reasons to be optimistic about their world and lives and so to the extent you can supply them with plausible reasons for optimism mm-hmm. you will be welcome um, I think that's a legitimate like I said it goes back to my earlier position that it's pointless to be in this game unless you can find a reason to be optimistic otherwise mm-hmm. you know why don't I just do something why don't I just trade bonds on Wall Street right I mean if if I don't believe there's some um, magic at the end of the rainbow um, so that kind of people but that's not a necessarily a surprise but the kind of the kind of Mm-hmm. the yearning for like I said reasons to be optimistic um, and <clears throat> is it is it optimism or is it that people want to be reinforced in their opinions already or, or just uh, are they linked? See, I don't know I don't know I don't think that that I don't think I've never thought that reinforcement is this is where books are different from speeches people don't actually if you're talking to them addressing them I find people uh, are much less willing to be challenged. I think they want to hear they want their they want their they want to be reinforced in their position. Mm-hmm. The point of a speaker, I will sit and listen to you for forty five minutes if at the end of the day you tell me why I'm right. right? Uh-huh. In a book, on the other hand, it's a much safer environment. It's private. It's going on inside your own head. Um, you can always put it down and walk away. In that environment, I feel like there is a much greater willingness to be um, challenged and open mm-hmm. um, that's interesting so you could so I mean so you think the simplicity of arguments in books could be that in principle if people read blink all the way through it would have been a good recipe the people are willing to accept things and the opposite oh, yeah. and, and be thoughtful yeah I think I mean I think uh, uh, I mean also you know it's it, I, I I have missed out one very I could just have botched it in blink I mean that that's a real possibility that I just didn't write the book the way I should have written it and that I that no one I mean that clearly my intention was not shit was not didn't communicate it to most readers so the fault really does belong to me I mean well, I, was, I, I think <laughs> I think I think it's a it, my, my expectation is you probably didn't guess that people remember the beginning so vividly and yeah I didn't read my anchoring I didn't read my my <laughs> Tversky and Kahneman properly enough yeah. before I did the book. Um, <clears throat> it would be interesting at some point to do a survey of readers and see what what do they really remember. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I mean, it differs from... Uh, with Outliers, it's very, it differs culturally a lot. People seize on different <clears throat> parts of it. But, but Outliers also is more consistent yeah, in yeah. the story. Yeah, so it's, it's a different... A, I mean, I learned, in a certain sense, I learned my lesson from it. <laughs> Um, anything else you think you've learned about the psychology of readers? So we have the beginning, we have optimism, we're open to organizing ideas. Well, you know, it's a, I mean, this is not a terribly original observation, but uh, yeah, like I said, touched on earlier, I've learned how, how much uh, books are um, sort of uh, the raw material of sociability. And maybe it's because my, I mean, no, it's not different with me. Um, but when I was growing up, we never talked about what we read. But I realize it's very unusual, and that for most readers, you read in order to 
Like, so the number of, when I, I just know, you know, talking to people that book signings or whatever, the number of conversations that start, mm -hmm. and then I was talking about this with my husband or my yeah. son or something or my daughter. And I just realized, like, that's the kind of, the notion that a private, the private experience of reading is a prelude to a shared experience. Mm -hmm. It's really kind of beautiful. Yeah. Um, I mean, it is, and especially when you have such a popular book that it's easy yeah. to find people at random that have read it. Yeah, and so it's uh, yeah, it gets uh, gets gets closer to that. Um, so another so being being an optimist. Actually, by the way, what are you working on now? Like a New Yorker piece about um, it's really not going very well. It's about um, what's wrong with uh, university rankings. <laughs> so what's wrong? Yeah, I mean, I think I don't really have anything terribly yet uh, interesting. It, it, all of the things that you know are wrong with it. I mean, I don't have anything fast. I don't have any great grand uh, contributions to the existing hostile literature. So um, I'm a little disheartened with it at the moment. But um, yeah. I just sort of, the absurdity of most ranking systems just kind of is overwhelming. Yeah, but but I think the, the, the point that uh, any rating system emphasizes the dimensions in which it's rated on and, and, and ignores other ones is yeah. incredible. Yeah. And especially when I talk to PhD students that want to be students somewhere, right? They want to study with somebody. I mean, that's really what they wanted. Yeah. And who cares where they are? Yeah. That's, that's the majority of your education as a PhD student. You'll get with one, one person, yeah. one advisor. Yeah, so they, and they could be anywhere. Yeah, but, but it's really hard to convince people that if they're not at Harvard, yeah, uh, that they will. Such a pernicious. Uh, uh, yeah, it's it's very uh, and <clears throat> you know, you know I kind of uh, admitting personally when I moved from MIT to Duke, I I felt for a few months loss of uh, brand name. Yeah, I was yeah. disappointed with myself. Yeah, about it. I was kind of upset that, that I felt mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, but but for a while, I mean, there, there is this incredible. Uh, yeah, no, it's funny, it's funny that, that I mean, the U.S. news people say, "Oh, we were just doing a consumer <coughs> thing," and it, the academics were the ones who blew it out of proportion. That's for their, their defense, which is probably accurate, actually. And I don't think I, I think that it's it's all about influencing the students. I don't think yeah. academics really care. Oh, I don't know. There's, the literature is so voluminous. Do you know how many papers have been written on U.S. news? I mean, astonishing really? numbers. Especially the law schools are obsessed. With oh, these really? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the professional schools are very, because they really see oh, that's right. how much they're, um, and there's such income generators, professional schools, yeah. that it's minor differences in care. rankings. Yeah. Um, so I have two more questions. One is, how has your kind of, you know, studies of social science and getting involved in it had, had changed your politics? My, fundamentally, I remain what I was when I, what I've been for most of my life, which is to the... Canadian. Canadian. <laughs> Canadian, and so, which means I'm in this country to the left of center. I think it makes you less ideological in the sense that you have less patience for the notion that policy prescriptions in <clears throat> and of themselves can make a lasting difference. It means you pay much more attention to sort of people's psychological motives. Mm -hmm. um, it means you 
are very, very conscious about unintended consequences. I mean, it's sort of like, in all the predictable way, all those things that psychologists worry about, you start to import into your political perspective. Mm -hmm. So, for example, all of a sudden you become, and you must know this very well, when you listen to economists, <coughs> you become, you just roll your eyes half the time. You just think, how, you just can't get over the kind of poverty of their worldview. Or when you listen to military leaders, regardless of their perspective, you just think, if you never read any psychology or sociology, like, you know, why, why do you think that there is only one response to an, an exterior threat? Mm -hmm. You know, boom, right? Does it never occur to you that that might have, you know, like you just, all of a sudden you just start the, the kind of psychological mindset or sociological mindset always, it makes, it, it makes you all of a sudden much more interested in secondary effects. And I think that's the great contribution of, of that. It's why I think I, although it is, although they would be an unwieldy force, I think that academics belong in public policy debates to a much greater extent than they participate now. I think right. there should be a kind of regular way to acquaint people in Congress and in the administration with what, with how academics think, yeah. because it's so incredibly important. I have far more trust in, in, in the kind of perspective of people from the academic community on most issues than I do from people from the political or kind of public policy community. Yeah, I just give a talk to the SEC. It's amazing how little they know about the stuff that they are discussing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, what about how much we should trust human beings in general? Like how, how, um, and the role of expertise. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about all of those, uh, shouldn't it change how you view uh, paternalism? Well, you do. I mean, I do think free you markets. Yeah, you become. Uh, I'm not as hostile to ideas that would be perceived by some as paternalistic, uh -huh. um, particularly in difficult. I mean, there's, there's, there's. It strikes me that there's a small number of really difficult issues that you don't even need to be a PhD in psychology to understand that human beings are going to have difficulty navigating them. Healthcare, beautiful example. It's an insanely hard thing. And this notion you can throw people out there and have them make decisions all by themselves is preposterous, right? Um, personal finance is another. I, I always remember this. I started at the Washington Post, and the Washington Post, when I was 24 years old, and they had a thing where they, they matched, they gave you a, uh, every month they gave you a, if you put aside a certain amount of your money, they would match it in Washington Post stock. And my editor, my out of the business section where I worked, came to me and said, the minute you get that stock, you sell it, right? And you buy an index fund or a mutual fund. And I said, why? Why wouldn't I invest in a company? And he sat me down and he said, no, no, no. You cannot buy, you know, even the company you work for, it may seem like the, the yeah. hardest, you know, you can't, he was a paternalist and he just said, no, you don't exercise your own choice in this. You buy the following mutual fund yes. and you never think about this again or try to, that kind of, you need to have that person in your life. You really, at that, I was 24. I didn't know anything. I greatly over, I greatly underestimated my <coughs> ignorance and overestimated um, my kind of expertise, right? Which is what you do when you're 24. Yeah. 
And I had to have that person. And sure enough, of course, the Washington Post is now going out of business or not going out of business, but stock is not where it was 20 years ago. Um, so he was right, right? Well, that kind of... By the way, I was just in Canada and I met some people from, I wouldn't tell you the bank name, but a big bank in Canada. And, and they came out of this meeting and we had drinks. And they were so enthusiastic with what their banks were doing. They were going to move all the retirement to their own bank stock. So how did you learn that? It's just amazing. Richard Nisbet is my kind of favorite. Mm-hmm. And he has been, you know, from the beginning, preaching about situations and environments and how they influence us. And so this notion of you need to construct favorable environments for people. Yeah. That's, that's what you take away from a lot of... Um, you put them in a position to make the right decision. You just can't leave them. You know, none of us are good enough to be able to handle decisions on our, on our own. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're talking about the for an Israeli newspaper. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't be uh, right to do it without talking about Israeli politics. All right. So let's say you you got to, as a social scientist, you got to advise the Israeli government mm-hmm. about what uh, what they need to do. And by the way, in Israel. Political discussions are all the time. Everybody gives uncalled advice oh, yeah, yeah, to yeah. everyone. I was in Israel so, this summer. I was, in, I was in Tel Aviv for a week. I had fun. It's it's a really fun city. It, it's surprisingly how fun city it is compared to the trouble. What always amazes me about the way Israel is discussed outside of Israel, it's a very common human problem, that people talk about the Israeli position on something. Right? Mm-hmm. Of course, if you've been to Israel, you know there is no such thing as an Israeli position. It's the most contentious, divided, you know. Um, and I feel like... The, the, it's vocal. A, vocal. This sort of gap between the sense you have of this incredible diversity of opinion within the country and the kind of imaginary Israel, mm-hmm. which is described in conversations outside the country. This is a side issue, but it's a kind of a crucial side issue in terms of the way Israel is... Is, I mean, I, I feel like there was some way for, is, for Israelis to communicate to the rest of the world that they are in active debate, contention, argument over the same things the rest of the world is, mm-hmm. right? That would be really, really, really useful, right? As opposed to this, I mean, I, you know, you go to a place like Canada, I've had this discussion with many Canadians, and they talk about, well, the Israelis think, you can't construct a sentence which says has Israelis as the noun and think as the verb, right? <laughs> it's, an, it's a, and so that's the kind of, um, there's something really interesting that's going on there. I suppose we do that all the time with third parties, particularly third parties to whom we have mixed feelings. But I always wonder whether that is worse uh, in small countries. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just, I've been thinking about this sort of issue lately, but there's some, really interesting psychological mistake that's being made when we do that, when we kind of characterize a diverse population as being monolithic on, mm-hmm. on particular um, subjects. Um, someone told me, a friend of mine was writing a screenplay about that involved some discussion of Israeli soldiers in the, some of, in the West Bank or Gaza, I've forgotten where, going on these patrols, there was some scene and so he went with an Israeli patrol. And he's like, the big problem, of course, was that they were going at night and they were supposed to be going quietly, but they were arguing the whole time about what they should be doing. <laughs> I thought, like, that is precisely the kind of story you need to tell, even in the midst of doing something 
controversial. They're all arguing, right? I mean, it's kind of... Yeah, and very few people know how many Israelis refuse to... I mean, there's a yeah. lot of uh, complexity yeah. inside. There is, though, a sense in which I think... So I'm much more against the government inside than outside. Israel. Yeah. Right. So, uh, which, is, which is kind of odd from a human bonding perspective. So imagine I meet you and we talk about Israel. From a friendship perspective, yeah. I would like to be more <coughs> left-winning, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, be as left-winning as you are and attack together the government. I mean, this is kind of used, known as a way to get people to be common, right? We can gang yeah. on a, yeah. a, known, yeah. a known enemy. But I don't, I think it's a, it's a secondary motive. And, the, yeah. the idea of not laundering bad dirty yeah. uh, outside in some sense is is more powerful. And I find lots of Israelis who have really deep, thorough debates with other Israelis mm-hmm. portray much more protective mm-hmm. uh, picture mm-hmm. outside. So, so part of it could be that we're doing well, it as well. Yeah, this is, but this is consistent with all that line of thinking about the way minority groups behave. Mm-hmm. So it's why uh, you can you can scream and argue and within the family because your place in the family is unassailable. Um, but in a, in when you're outside the family, you can't behave that way because you could easily be expunged or. Mm-hmm. But you can't kick an Israeli out of Israel, right? Yeah. So you can say what you want when you're there. But um, well, yeah, it's also hard to kick us from here. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so. So one good advice is, uh, I think, interesting advice is to try and express the the complexity. I think that would be very, uh, <coughs> yeah. I mean, I, I I think that would be just incredibly useful for people to know how much um, uh, and to pe- get people to stop using sentences like "Israelis think yeah. that X." Um, any any particular thought about bridging the Israeli-Palestinian gap? Well, no, I, I so hesitate to. Yeah, no worry. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't really know enough. Um, I was. Uh, I, I mean, there's really. I was sort of. There's sort of. There are three warring states, right? There's Palestinians, and then there's the kind of conservative religious Israel, and then there's the kind of modern Tel Aviv kind of Israel. There's also the uh, Israeli Arabs. Israeli Arabs, which, which are different. Another. So there's so many. I mean, I, I mean, I guess I, I yeah, I just I would I would. Um, uh, so we can we can make the question more general, right? I mean, so we have we have people with incredibly deep, seated, emotional baggage, which have a very hard time to seeing reality from the perspective of the other, mm-hmm. the other party. Mm-hmm. Um, there is this terrible uh, history, with with anger and resentment and. And lack mm-hmm. of trust, and forget where it is, yeah. In in what scale? The question is: Can can social science says anything about how you bridge those gaps? Uh, yeah, I mean it, it must. Do I know <laughs> what part of social science? Uh, you know, I mean, I, for, for me, part of the answer that you gave earlier is is kind of interesting, which is to say, if if people. Uh, can be thought about organizing principles different. And if data, mm-hmm. I mean, usually the discussion is about data. Yeah. Usually the discussion is you did this and you did this and this happened in 48. No, this happened in 48. You, you did first. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's that. I also, I mean, I, 
it's funny. The only thought I had when I, whenever I go to Israel, I'm, I've been a couple of times now. Um, I always wonder about, this is a totally crazy notion. It has nothing to do with social science, but, um, you know, I don't understand why states can't be liberated. We can now, we don't have the means to liberate states from their geographical construct. That's to say, Um, suppose that this street was the dividing line between New Jersey and New York. You know, I can be, if, what if I could, cho- I could choose to be in New Jersey and it's a really easy matter for New Jersey to tax me and have my laws applied. You know, now we're sophisticated enough with everything in the kind of, that I can be treated as a New Jersey citizen, even though I may, may happen to live across the street from New Jersey. You, you know, you see what I'm saying? Like there's, there's a kind of, this very kind of like pre-modern notion of social organization, which seems to me that we can get around now. Like that's, that's, that's a very optimistic. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I kind of mean that. Like, why? I wonder whether I've always wondered whether. I mean, I always think about this because I'm an immigrant, and I'm constantly annoyed at how preposterous the no. Canadian. No, but you, you haven't. Uh, no, I'm not, a, not an American citizen. I'm always annoyed. So you're not an immigrant, right? What, what isn't an immigrant somebody changed or oh, you don't have to change citizenship oh well I'm actually twice I'm a, I was born in England immigrated to okay. Canada as okay. a child became a Canadian citizen moved to America um, but I'm always annoyed at like about how the it's so like you know 18th century when I crossed the border it's like why do you care why does anyone care like you guys can all work it out I'll just pay you know send my electronically my money in one direction and another direction when you know like it says me all this stuff is kind of like they're we're pretending it's we're dividing up Europe in 1848 you know when in fact surely we could there's must be some organizing way to move beyond anyway that's just this doesn't answer your question but um, there is a lot of I I do have some optimism that there are going to be organized methods of organization that can get around some of these um, um, some of these Uh, problems. Uh-huh. That's indeed very optimistic. That's great. <laughs> that's good. good. I think that's all I have. Okay. Um, actually, I will ask you one uh, non-relevant question. We collected a little bit of data last week mm-hmm. that said that when people meet each other to talk, they largely complain. Oh, really? Now, it's not that big of a sample and so on, but it's kind of an interesting thing. So, you know, you and I meet for coffee. Mm-hmm. We could talk wonderful things. You can ask me how I'm doing this. It couldn't be better. You wouldn't yeah. believe how wonderful I am. Or I can say my wife is bugging me and my brain yeah. is doing this. And it seems that people have a, a, a more of an attraction mm-hmm. to the negative. Well, isn't it? Because if you... present your world too positively it's threatening to others it, it has lots of possibilities yeah. right yeah. It's, it's I could I could actually as a social utility give you upward comparison you say you thought you're doing worse let's look at my life yeah and now you could feel yeah. you could feel better about it yeah. it could be create a bigger bond bonding mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, opportunity yeah and our you know our, I don't know isn't our our kind of social language of complaint is so much richer yeah. uh, than our complaint than our language of Of um, celebration of our virtues and successes yeah and, and, and also you know so so I, I think about you studying the positive part mm-hmm. of human life and I largely study the oh I see the, <laughs> you are the yes you are the irrationalities <laughs> and the 
and the neuroses and the yeah. I mean, the opposite of positive psychology, right? Positive psychology came out. Yeah. To, yeah. To say let's not just study negative and unhappy stuff. Yeah. Um, but I think first of all, just thinking generally, we have a much higher capacity for pain than for pleasure. Yeah. If you wanted to hurt people, it would be really, really easy. If you want to make them happy, it's actually quite hard. Yeah. Uh, and then I think the, the the richness of the language as well. But there's some something very um, that is interesting. Yeah, appealing about it. I'm just not yeah. sure. Yeah. What it is. I wonder, how, and I also wonder how kind of culturally. Um, uh, I say something because I grew up in this part of Ontario that had a lot of has a lot of um, Mennonites. Mm-hmm. Very interesting cultural group who are whose organizing principle is modesty. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and so their their language is really, really interesting. They'll never say they're happy. But to not say they're happy is a sign of happiness, mm-hmm. right? It's the kind of, that shows that they're, they lead a well-calibrated, contented life. Yeah. Um, and there's also parents who think they could never praise their kids in front of other people. Yeah. They should always, oh, my kids are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, could, yeah. I think the world could use a bit more of that, actually. Oh, less less praising of the less kids. Less praising of kids in front of other people would be a useful step forward. I think. Uh, you have kids? No, I don't. No. When I do, if I when I do, <laughs> I intend to praise them in front of other people, but I'll recognize that I'm part of the problem when I do. Very good.